0: This morning our scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 2. We'll just be reading verses 1 through 11, but uh, Les is actually going to be preaching on the whole chapter. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: You know, one of my favorite gotcha moments in the Old Testament happens when a prophet by the name of Nathan comes to confront uh, King David in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, The confrontation happens after David in the months prior had, oh, I don't know, um, slept with a married woman, uh, gotten her pregnant, uh, saw to the murder of her husband, one of his most trusted military advisors, uh, and then uh, basically took her as his own wife. So it was pretty bad. He deserved to be confronted. But he, of course, had completely glossed over it. So when Nathan comes to him, rather than sort of immediately confront him to his face on his crimes... He instead tells a story about a problem that had happened in their kingdom where someone who has lots of sheep went to someone who only had one sheep and stole his sheep from him. Well, you can feel in the text, King David just wells up with self-righteousness and and indignation, and he says, I tell you in verse 5 and 6, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. At which point, you know, Nathan, you can see him with his bony little finger pointing at David and says... You, you're the man. You're the one who did it. It's a great story, right? It's one of those dramatic moments. Now, look, it's nowhere near quite as dramatic as that story, but I had a similar experience of what we might call a gotcha moment very early in my marriage, uh, and really the first year. Ginger and I, when we first got married, had divided up the household tasks between each other, and I had uh, volunteered uh, to be a part of who's going to take out the garbage every day. So let's just say uh, that I was, shall we say, pathetically negligent at doing my particular chores. Uh, and so finally, exasperated with overflowing garbage bin, uh, my wife asking me, uh, very nicely I might add, four or five times prior to take it out, one morning on my way out for work, Ginger literally begs me, I just beg of you, please, can you please take the garbage out? Well, I welled up with self-righteousness and indignation and looked at her and was like, Ginger, I'm not an idiot, okay? I heard you the first time, I will take out the garbage. So I stormed out, walked out the back door, right past the garbage cans, got into my car, and started driving to work. Five minutes later, you're right. Five minutes later, the cell phone rings, and she's like, hey. I was like, what? She goes, did you forget something? It was that moment that I knew I had a problem. I was unable to learn that. I don't know what was going on. But we've been looking this semester at how how it is that we go from our faith in Christianity being very ordinary and mundane to something that's very alive. And what we've said is, is oftentimes it's our failure to appreciate and apprehend these most fundamental Christian truths. And again, there's nothing like a good gotcha story to sort of wake us out of our boredom. Well, in Romans 2, Paul is describing this very strange, but certainly universal human foible of being critical of everyone else around us? Just not me. <laughs> in other words, you see, there's nothing more natural than after listening to Paul's sort of um, you know, devastating critique of all the bad people in Romans 1, you know, the murderers and idolaters, to sort of think to yourself, "Yeah, you go get him, Paul. Tell him like it is. But Paul suddenly instead turns his bony finger at us, little finger of judgment, and says to himself, actually in verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, you who judge. Paul is confronting judges who are convinced that the only way that you really run away from God is through your irreligion. But what we're going to find out, though, in the message of Romans chapter 2 is you can run away from God equally as easy with your religion as well. And there's no more difficult lesson for people, oh, I don't know, who attend church on a Sunday morning like ourselves, to consider than what it means to identify and repent of being judgmental. And Paul's going to lead us through this with three sort of topics here. First of all, we're going to look at the moralizing judgers, the religious judgers, and then finally consider the cutoff judge, a little ray of hope at the end. First of all, moralizing judgers. Paul begins by addressing someone that's listening to him and being like, yes, Paul, well said. I concur with your judgment on these, on these teeming uh, sinful masses. Uh, I, like you, deplore and denounce all of those things. Now, it's important to remember, these are not necessarily people who might be appear to, use to be outwardly religious. But the way they talk, they sure do sound religious, don't they? I find it actually more than a little fascinating that in a day where the culture around us seems to be secularizing with every new uh, public opinion poll, those people who have zero formal appreciation for religion in general are themselves horribly judgmental. As far as I'm concerned, that's the meaning of social media in our particular day. And so Paul comes to this particular group and he says two things he feels like really needs to be heard. The first one is this. He puts a a question in front of it that seems at first glance a little presumptuous. Look at the second half of verse 1. Okay, but my problem is you actually do the same things that you're condemning in others. In other words, Paul's first accusation is a direct confrontation of hypocrisy. I mean, here you are, you're so high and mighty condemning these people when you're doing the exact same thing. Now, look, I've been reading this text for years, literally years, and I realize that there is a tendency when you first read that statement to think to yourself, well, I mean, maybe, Paul, that might happen. But the more I thought about this, I'm beginning to think that Paul is saying something much more profound. In my years in campus ministry, I used to love to talk to young men And I felt it was my responsibility to warn them about their futures, about how it was a cultural cliche, almost, that if you were going to have an affair, it typically would happen with someone in your workplace. Why? Well, statistics show if you're going to do that, it's going to happen there because that's where that person sees you at your best. They see you land the big sale. They see you succeed and do whatever you can to impress the boss. But what every man, and I felt like every young person in my, in my ministry needed to know, is that there is one reason, one reason only, why that individual at work is attracted to you. And that is because they don't live with you. The one who made the promise to you, who lives with you, she's seen it all. And she's still with you, by the way. What's the point? I think Paul is saying that the first reason why you should not posture yourself as morally superior to anybody is, brace yourself, because no one is morally superior to anyone else. That's what he's saying. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, whatever you condemn in others, not you are capable of yourself, but that you are doing right now. Of all the things that you're condemning, you're doing. It. It's not that you might do those things under certain circumstances. You are doing them right now. It is a bold confrontation. Uh, you, this is no surprise to y'all. I'm a bit of a TV junkie. And I read a book a number of years ago by a guy who told me that I lived apparently through the golden age of television, which was the 2000s. Didn't even know that, did you? And the reason, he said, was because of the popularity of these super realistic and dark cop dramas. Uh, or, or even the, the sort of a flawed and conflicted superhero movies that were just so popular with audiences. (laughs) And he starts to wonder, why were they so popular? Why did they resonate so much with people? Well, I think the Apostle Paul would say, because they're accurate, because they're more like real life. There's not a person in this room, if you think about it, who wants everything that they've ever done, everything you've ever said, or everything that you've ever thought to be made known to everybody, nobody. There's plenty enough hidden in someone's life to embarrass all of us into shame, period. All of us. You know, over the holidays, I had a chance to read what I would only describe as the excruciating uh, memoir, uh, Dear William, by Oxford native uh, David McGee. And I know David is a good friend of some of you, so I'll let you read it for yourself and draw your own conclusions as to whatever lessons can be learned from the memoir. But of all the effects that it had on me, I can tell you the most profound was the way in which David sort of pulls the curtain back on what we might call moral pretension, <laughs> to where he, he's basically saying, "Even the most glittering of families has got something going on. Something difficult is happening, everybody. And in a town that sort of lives by our tidy appearances, I found it to be quite revolutionary. It's right along with the Apostle Paul. So hypocrisy is the first thing he says to these moralizing judges. The second thing he says begins in verse 12. Because Paul envisions another group that's a little bit different than the first group. These are the people that are looking and being like, there you go, you religious freaks. You still think that there are laws in the universe that we got to buy. All these rules, all these man-made stuff, these religious r- rules, it's just relative. People make that stuff up. People have a right to live however they want. But it's as if Paul is thinking to himself, but do they really? And in verses 14 and 15, Paul starts to talk about a law that is, quote, written on their hearts. And that one day all of the, quote, secrets of men will be judged by God. What's he talking about? Look at at that verse. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. What in the world is he talking about? Well, the late Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to have an illustration about this passage. He talked about the invisible recorder. He would say everyone at their birth was given an invisible recorder that hung around their neck. So that when you came uh, uh, up to God at the end of time, invariably, there was going to be someone who would look and say, Whoa, 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 God, it's not fair for you to condemn me because you did not give me enough evidence to believe in you. I didn't have enough evidence. There wasn't enough proof. I was looking for it. I was longing for it, but you didn't get it. And Schaefer speculates. He's like, what if God actually looks at that individual and is kind of like, you know what? You're exactly right. That would not be fair for me to do that. So I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm only going to make judgment on you by what's on your recorder. At which time the person is like, there's a recorder. And as soon as you play it, all you find is that that recorder turned on every time you said the phrase, well, you ought, dot, dot, dot. Well, you ought to do so-and-so. Well, they ought to do so-and-so. When is someone going to do so-and-so? What's the point? <laughs> How many people would be able to survive if all of a sudden we knew that God was only going to judge me by the standards I held other people to? We'd all be toast. I would go to hell immediately for just what i do behind the wheel of a car. Look, what's the point? We're all going to face judgment for our judging, and therefore there's nobody that escapes this, especially not the moralizing judger. Secondly, though, there also is this different brand that we would refer to as the religious judger. This is a little bit different because this is a group of people that we find in verse 17 that are saying to Paul, okay, yeah, blah, 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 but what about the good people? You know, the people who go to church and have their quiet time and give a ton of money to the building program. And, you know, they don't drink alcohol anymore. And they they don't cheat on their taxes. You know, Paul, the Christian people. What about them? And so what Paul addresses when he starts speaking to Jewish people in particular is, is a religious form of judging that is born out of a specific problem. And that problem is using my moral efforts as leverage against the potential that God might disapprove of me. Does that make sense? There's nothing quite like religious actions, religious observance, come to church, reading the Bible, praying, who oftentimes it begins to feel like merit, doesn't it? And in our minds what we do is we set up a bit of a spiritual ledger just hoping that the balance sheet in the end sort of balances out. And maybe I've got more good than bad. Okay, so to these religious judges, Paul also has two things to say. First of all, same deal. You are a hypocrite. He says the same thing to the, to the, to the religious people as he does to the secular people. <laughs> He's like, hmm, so you don't like stealing. Do you steal? Huh, so adultery is not on your list of things. Do you commit adultery? It's a rhetorical question, but you know his answer is, you sure do. <laughs> In other words, what Paul is saying is, and there's no way of of, of escaping this, is he's helping explain that almost universal phenomenon where people who are the most vocal judges are themselves involved in the very act that they are so vigorously condemning. Ever notice that? Paul is saying there is a body in everyone's trunk. And the louder you protest those people, the more you look like somebody who's hiding something. Nobody gets out from under this. So hypocrisy, same thing there. Let that one cook for a while because that one will mess you up if you think about it too long. Secondly, though, and kind of subtler, look at how Paul argues with them. Back in verse one, he says, you do the same things. Now, exactly what things is he referring to? Well, In context, it's pretty clear that he's talking about the dirty laundry list from chapter 1. Remember those? talks about the envious, the haters, the boastful, the covetous, the heartless. And what you find interesting about that list is none of those really mention what you and I might call external sins. They're more internal sins. It's It's the stuff of the heart. Paul is focusing on the things that really, honestly, nobody else sees, Because look, when you look at the law, there's a tendency to do self-examination only in terms of your external behaviors. Did I do this or did I do that? (laughs) Did anybody see me do this or anybody see me do that? But see, what Paul is doing is he's doing exactly what Jesus did. Because Jesus came along in the Sermon on the Mount and he said, look, it's not enough to say, don't murder. Because if you actually hate someone in your heart, it's the same as murder. Now, here's the deal. You wanna talk about how to break up boredom with Christianity? Throw this one in there the next time you're at a cocktail party. Nobody believes this, I promise you. People look at you and be like, that's crazy talk to say that murder is the same thing as hatred, Uh uh-uh. People found this powerfully offensive, don't they? But what I think Jesus and Paul are trying to do is to say, we are laying out a radical moral vision that is about so much more than just your external behaviors. We're talking about a humanity, a quality of humanity that doesn't have to fake it, that is a person of integrity, of wholeness. Christianity cannot be about doing some light moral pruning. And if it's not, then why is it the way we talk? We wake up one day and we're kind of like, oh man, I've just gotten away from God. I'll go back to church. Don't get me wrong. Both those statements can be absolutely true. One be true and the other one be a good thing to do. But oftentimes we come because we realize, oh, we just need a little bit of filing off of the rough edges. I've been trying to stop cussing, you know, Uh, trying to sort of stop drinking as much as I do, trying to look at less pornography here. That's the reason why I'm going to be here. Paul is looking and saying, no, I'm trying to get you to look at the root of your identity, Jesus is saying, look at the source of your life, this thing that I call your heart. That's where I want to be. Because if it can't happen there, it's not going to happen in the externals either. Springtime will eventually be here. We're languishing in February, as we always do. But there'll be little acorns. And don't you love taking your children around and showing them a little acorn? And saying, you see this little big thing? That's going to be that big tree one day. And they look at it with wonderment. What Paul is saying is, look, maybe your tree of sin didn't grow up in exactly the same way as being as full and destructive as those people you can't stand, but it ain't because you lack the talent. It comes from the same acorn. It's the same seed, and therefore, essentially, there's no difference. (laughs) It's actually worse than that. Bear with me. You remember when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount? We talked about that English professor at uh, Texas A&M. Uh, back in the 90s, whose name was Virginia Stem Owens, and she always taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And she would ask the students, what do you think about this? And invariably they hated it. They hated it. Oh, yes, that's so oppressive, such a bunch of strict sort of rules. I mean, how small minded can you get? Well, invariably, by the end of the discussion, she would come and she would say, okay, but here's my question for you. How many of you really, really want for the people around you to treat you that way? She so suddenly it, it get quiet, somebody everybody'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you see the, the, the hypocrisy? This is the basic human tendency. We are so skilled at being critical of everyone else except ourselves. But when it comes down to it, we expect others to treat us in the very way we judge them for not being. Yeah. So Paul's a little cooked up about that, that the religious judgers. So, there's moralizing judges, there's religious judges, but one small last little point of hope here. We need to consider the cut off judge. These are very difficult things to swallow, and I realize you can get the point where you're like, now I kind of know what David felt with that you know, Nathan sort of uh, pointing at me. But look, if you dive into this passage, you're going to see that when Paul starts confronting these people, he actually leaves a couple of traces of hope that we're going to build out over the next few weeks. But I want you to notice it first now. Because Paul turns to this discussion in verses 25 through 29 to the topic of circumcision. Bear with me. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. (laughs) What in the world is he talking about? Okay, we'll go back to the beginning when God calls the very first Jewish person. It's a guy by the name of Abraham. And he tells him that he's going to have and needs to have a physical outward sign of what needed to happen inwardly. There was, indicated by the sign, something that was to be cut off. And he's saying, therefore, that this sign, Abraham, is not arbitrary. My guess is Abraham probably wondered exactly why God was asking him to do this. But I remember one preacher making this point of saying that in ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, culture, there were no contracts that people signed. They didn't even call them contracts. They called them covenants. And what you did with a covenant was, if you wanted to guarantee that you were doing something, you would enact a little drama. Look, in our day, what we do when we want to bind ourselves to a contract, what do we do? We call the lawyers, we get some paper, it's drawn up real nice, and maybe they give you a fancy pen, right? And I get to sign with that fancy pen and I'm obligated to something. That's not the way they did it in ancient times. What they did was they would enact a little ceremony. For instance, there might be someone who would stand up and gather a bit of dust off of the ground throw it into the air and say, may I be scattered like this dust if I ever fail to keep my promise for this thing. In other words, it was a physical sign that was enacting the curse for breaking the covenant. Does that make sense? All right, now go back to Genesis 17. Why is God telling Abraham to circumcise himself and all of his male offspring? Well, it's because God was telling Abraham, look, Abraham, by being circumcised, you are admitting that that if you disobey this covenant, if you break the terms of this contract, you deserve to be cut off. You deserve to be cast out, cast off from me forever. I mean, we can judge that as being primitive. I'm sure we all do, but you know, it probably drove home a point now, didn't it? But here's the problem. (laughs) The problem is the story of the Old Testament. Because if you, if, you, if you ask me, Les, what is the Old Testament about? I can answer it in one sentence. No one kept the covenant. Nobody. Not even the so-called heroes of the Old Testament. Even they get dirt spilt on them. We, we already found out a horrible story about King David, of all people. And what happens is when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're left asking this question, if the terms of how God establishes and keeps the covenant are so regularly broken by God's creatures... <laughs> And how can anybody know God? How can anyone be in relationship with him? Especially in dealing with circumcision, that question hangs over the New Testament. Ready for the answer? Comes explicitly in Colossians 2 chapter 11 when Paul says in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Hold that thought because he's talking to Gentiles and Gentiles are thinking to themselves, feel like I would have noticed. That didn't happen to me. Nope, this one wasn't done by hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What does that mean? This is what it means. It means that Jesus was cut off from his people. And he was cut off for his people. It means that rather making his people be cut off for breaking the covenant, he decided to take on both terms of the covenant. He not only took up his side, which was to remain faithful, and he absolutely was, but then he took up our side, which was to receive a punishment for every time we ever broke it. It's as if God decides he's going to turn the gun on himself. And he took his own life so that for our sakes he could rise again and give us his acceptance for free. Leading to what? So that we would never have to fear being cast out. Because this is what's nuts. You know what causes our judgmentalness in the first place? Fear. And it's only when that gospel can cast out fear that we can stop judging each other. Look, here's the point. Jesus was the judge who was judged so that we could stop judging. I had a friend, I had a friend that I used to work with in a, in a tennis shop that I worked in when I was in college. Paid my way through college working in this tennis shop. Stringing tennis rackets of all things. And there was a guy behind the desk who used to get in all these religious conversations. And at one point he was like, you know, the one thing I don't like about you Christians, it's a great way to start a sentence. He said, is you always talk about this judgmental God. I just don't like that. The more you talk about a good judgmental God, it seems like it seems like you're setting people up to be vindictive and judgmental themselves. Hmm. I don't think I had a snappy answer in the moment. I'm almost certain that I didn't. But after thinking about it afterwards, I thought, no, that's not right. Because when all of a sudden I see the judging God, I begin to realize that once you face him and survive him in Christ, I don't have to hold grudges anymore. Why? Because I don't have anything to protect anymore. I've already owned the fact that all those people that I used to condescend, I do all the same things, according to Paul, right? I don't have any pride that I'm trying to bolster up that makes me want to look down on you. I don't have any secrets that I'm afraid of getting out. It's all there. But Paul understands that you can be free from the tyranny of being a judgmental person. See the genius of that. The genius of how only the gospel, through this weird Old Testament rite of circumcision, somehow sets up and says, actually there's a better circumcision. It's a circumcision of Christ, and he's going to circumcise your heart. He's going to cut away all the things that used to be drawn to the stuff that did nothing but divide you from each other and was all wrapped up in fear. That's what I'm going to kill. And when I do, it creates a beautiful community, doesn't it? I hope we're that kind of group. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're going to have to lead us into that, especially as we come to the table and we begin to reflect and and look into what you have for us in this bread and this wine. Father, there we pray that we would be able to leave that fear behind. We leave the fear at the table and know where it belongs. So, Father, we pray that in our last time together that you would, in these last moments together, that you would give us grace to see that very clearly. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.